0: Lord, we do praise you this morning, and thank you for just the many things that you do for us, not just simply material things that you've given, and opportunities, and uh, those that have good health, we praise you, and just the abundance that we share, not only as a country, but in fact, we even pray for our leadership, the country, and Desire that you would protect them and that you would protect particularly the godly leaders, that you would give them strength to be able to lead and to do those things that would be beneficial not only for our country, but would continue to allow us to have the freedom to teach your word and to proclaim your gospel. So we desire this morning that as we look into your word, that we gain insight to make us more effective in ministering to others and that this would help us to transform, maybe on a small scale, but individuals that would have an impact on the culture we live in. We commit our time in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, as we get into the book of Romans, this actually transitions into that very important passage, Romans 6, 7, and 8, that deals with how do you live the Christian life, what are the basic principles involved, and I think sadly, most believers don't have a handle on this passage. Partly, it's not that easy like most of the other passages we've looked at in the Book of Romans, but I think if you look at it, it's not that complicated as well. So hopefully we'll gain some light from it to help us. I think most of you understand already, but... It'll sharpen your understanding, hopefully, that you can minister to those that don't have a clue. I'm talking about believers that have a hard time knowing how to appropriate what God has provided. Principles are very similar to the passage we looked at before, or we've been looking through. Justification. So it shouldn't be difficult to follow. So, Book of Romans, written to Roman believers. And I want to stress that the book of Romans is not written to an unbelieving audience. It's written to those that know Christ in the city of Rome. In fact, there are very, very few passages in all of the Bible that are written to the unbeliever. The only one that comes to mind is perhaps the Gospel of John, but even it was given to the church. So Romans deals with the unbeliever, but it's written to the believers that we understand the nature of man and and the nature of man in relationship to God. Man is lost, separated. Paul uses the word unrighteous. Then he develops the concept of righteousness. In other words, a right standing before God. Writing to a believing audience so that we understand what the unbeliever is up against and what we were up against, if we think back so that we can better minister to them. So the passage he's transitioning, he's taking it the next step after one comes to a relationship. He calls that justification. So man is condemned, 1, 18 through 3 through 20. You've been looking at this section, and we're at the very end of chapter 5, where he talks about justification. So he's using theological terms because he's writing to a believing audience. And in the first century, they would understand what he's talking about. And he's actually taking terms from the courtroom. Condemnation. This is what happens to a criminal that is found guilty. And in the whole section, he develops the idea that before God, we all stand guilty. And there's none that has a right standing. There's none righteous. So you go through a court scene. We're pronounced guilty. Guilty. There's a sentence, but in that sentence, Jesus Christ paid that penalty so that we can be, if you want to use a more contemporary word, so we can be acquitted. We're still guilty, but somebody paid the life sentence for us so the judge can pronounce us justified. So it's a legal term. And we've been looking at the details So now that we have been set free, you might say, from a prison sentence, even though we have not changed, we're still thieves, we're still liars, we're still rapists, we're still all of the things that we were before. The difference is in justification, we're declared righteous, we're declared to have a right standing. So chapter 6 through 8, how do we get out of that old life? And now transition and grow and learn how to live a righteous life. That's what 6 through 8 is all about. So we're going to get into that next time we get back to the book of Romans. But the passage we're looking at is a transition into that. So he's transitioning. In fact, the whole chapter transitions from justification to sanctification And he deals with two major things. He's going to emphasize the profit that we gain from justification. Verse 1, having been justified. That's the beginning of verse 1. In other words, past tense. We've experienced this granting or this declaration of righteousness. And that's to motivate us because there's great abundance that God has provided for us. And he talks about that in verses 1 through 11. Then the second major paragraph, 12 to 21, we're at the very end of it, where he's talking about the reign of death, sin and death. That's what prevents us from coming into a relationship. And he's transitioning because we need to know that same principle. That is what keeps us from maintaining a right relationship and growing in righteousness. So... We're in the latter part of that, the reign of grace, beginning in verse 18. This is the basis for a righteous life or a life pleasing to God or a life that is transforming or being in the process of transformation by God. And then that gets us into 6 through 8, which we'll get into. So the reign of grace from the one, and that's emphasized throughout the passage the one in this context, and specified clearly, Jesus Christ. He is the one that not only grants grace for justification, but on the same basis of what He accomplished on the cross, we have ongoing grace, which we saw even in five one through eleven. So the result of two acts. He continues his contrast here. We looked at verse eighteen and. I don't want to spend too much time. We've been looking at all of these passages. We looked at the reign of death versus the reign of grace. The whole passage, first part, the reign of death through one man's sin. One man, the emphasis again, all the way back to Adam. That produced a situation where all of mankind has been under the domination, you might say. We could use a word that maybe communicates... The dictatorship, a rulership, use the common word, we're going to see it when we talk about grace, the rulership like a king reigning on a throne, except this is evil, the reign of death, and men have died throughout world history, showing that's the penalty, the consequence of sin. We looked at it in a comprehensive sense, we'll review that when we get back later. So the reign of death, and he starts expounding on that in verse 12, and then he interrupts himself. I'm not going to go back through that verse. And he gives explanation of what he said in verse 12, that's 13 through 14. And then he's going to, in that contrast, the two reigns. And then that skips to verse 18, where he's going to pick up the thought He started with this thought of the reign of death through one man's sin, and now he's going to develop the idea of the reign of grace from one man's righteousness. So we're getting into the positive aspect. And we looked at verse 18 last week. So it says, Just as this is true, that there is this reign of death through the one man, so then, and then he kind of reminds us of what he said, Even so... There is this reign of grace from one man's righteousness and that's the basis of not only getting out of that condition, but it's going to be a basis as he transitions into 6 through 8. How do we live now that we have been justified now that we've received that? So he talks about the results of that one man's righteousness beginning of verse 18. So then, this is still reviewing from last time, As through one transgression, that's Adam's sin, there resulted condemnation to all men. Kind of summarizing what he's been talking about all along. 12 through 17. To kind of pick up where he left off. Remember he interrupted his thought there and said, I need to explain a little further. So now he's picking it up. And then here's where it picks up. Even so. And from there, even so through one transgression act of righteousness, now he's going to give the positive, this reverses long-term, short-term, reverses the effects of that one sin. So one act of righteousness, and I think he's alluding, because he's developed it already in the earlier earlier verses, that one act is what Christ accomplished on the cross, one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life. He has a little phrase to it. Now justification as he's been describing it in the prior passages, beginning in chapter 3, verse 21, he's talking about that initial pronouncement or declaration of righteousness at the moment we trusted in Jesus Christ. But when he adds of life, he's transitioning. Now, how does this work out? How does that justification work out in our life experience? And when it says to all men, keep it in context. What Paul is saying, it's available to all men. He assumes, you've read what he's already talked about, that Basically, there's only one way that we access it. It's through Jesus Christ. And it's on the basis of what he's done. In other words, by grace, we access it through faith. So anyone, and this is not uncommon in scripture, when it uses the word all, it doesn't always, you have to look at the context, doesn't always mean all universally because the Bible doesn't teach universalism. In other words, Just because all men, without exception, except Jesus Christ. You say without exception, then I give you an exception. All men apart from Jesus Christ, without exception, except for him. We are sinners and we are condemned to death. It doesn't mean that the all men here means all without exception. It means all within the category of those who have received the justification. He's made that clear already. If that's not clear, we know that some are condemned. For example, 2 Thessalonians 1 8 and 9, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God. There's the difference. Coming into that relationship with God, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel. This offer of Grace, the gospel, good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then verse 9, they will pay the penalty of that condemnation, the penalty of eternal destruction. Then it goes on, away from the presence of the Lord. In other words, eternal separation from God and from the glory of his power. So... When it says all men, it's not a universal statement in terms of all without exception. This context, at the end of justification, where he's already made it clear that we escape by what Jesus Christ has done, he's paid the penalty, those that reject that will experience the Second Thessalonians 1 passage.
1: So when they say all men, it's sort of a generalization. Without saying all men, those who come to Christ and... Blah, blah, blah. Well, remember he's been stressing, we've seen every verse
0: here, there's a contrast. Okay. And I'm going to remind you, he's contrasting the transgression, the result condemnation to all men. Okay. The all well, men there. Right. That is inclusive. Yeah. Uh, that's why I'm making the point here. Okay. But the contrast, if you keep the contrast, that's why he's, he's maintaining this contrast over here, but With the understanding he's writing, I've already told you that only those that trust in Jesus Christ, and remember we talked a lot about it's not our good works because the best that we can do are filthy rags, Isaiah's phrase. Paul has said in chapter 3, there are none righteous. And If you didn't get it the first time, no, not one. Okay? So he's already made it clear that we get out of that experience only through Jesus Christ on the basis of what he did. Okay? So he's just maintaining the contrast here. So we have one transgression that leads to condemnation to all men. Now that one is without exception. But there's the alternative, the one act of righteousness that if you are justified by, on the basis of that righteousness, you receive this justification that opens the door to new life, you might even paraphrase it, a justification to life living now. And that is for all men within the limits of those who are justified. So it's available to all men without exception but only those that receive it are the ones that escape the condemnation. So verse 19, he's going to expand upon it and continue his contrast. So let's take a look at verse 19. And in verse 19, he says, For, I'm going to continue at on. He's going to give an expansion. We're just working our way through this paragraph. I've tried to summarize it here to help you Think God's thoughts after him. It's not an easy passage. It's a little complicated. That's why I've kind of given you a chart here. So 19. For as through one man's disobedience. Now he's going to contrast disobedience and obedience. Going back to the one man. Who is the one man? We've seen that over and over. Adam So as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And woven through all of this, he gives us now another word relating to sin. We've already seen three of them. We've seen hamartia, which is the basic word that is most common, kind of a general word, missing the mark. In other words, no one is righteous, no one meets the standard. The standard is God himself. He is the only righteous one. After Adam, Adam's descendants are all missing the mark, falling short of God's glory. We've seen parabasis. It's a violation of a standard. It can be a violation of a law. It's translated offense in the paragraph that we're looking at. We've already seen paraptoma. That's the right way to pronounce it. Is that all right with you, the Greek? I want to call you a scholar. No. No? (laughs) I'm just a (laughs) shepherd. You're just a what? Shepherd. Shepherd. Ah, okay. Translated very commonly. In fact, it's used in this passage several times transgression. That one also transgressing a standard. Somewhat of a synonym for Hamartia. And then now we have another one, parakoe, which is disobedience. In other words, it's more of a relational word. In other words, it assumes that there's a relationship and you are going against the wishes of another. Or the commands of an authority. In this case, it would be God himself. So we have four words for Sin in this passage kind of makes it a little more complicated. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many, now the many here is what? Everybody. All men. But notice he's carrying the contrast. The many were made sinners. So he's not saying there's many, but there might be exceptions in this part because of what he's already said. But he's carrying the contrast. Again, it's a different contrast. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many. See the contrast? This just strengthening the contrast here. Now, in this case, the many does have the idea is that uh, there are many, but there's others that are apart from the many. Slight difference in the two. So even so, through the obedience, here's the alternative, the difference. And by the way, Jesus lived an entirely obedient life. Scriptures are clear that he's the only sinless one. And the chain from Adam is broken because of what? This is why this concept is very important. Because of the virgin birth. So a virgin conception and a virgin birth breaks that... Reign of sin in relationship to only Jesus Christ. Unless any of the the others of you experienced a virgin birth and haven't sinned since then, uh, any I don't see any hands up. So, oh, there's one in the back. <laughs> <laughs> I got to
1: be careful when I go to an auction, you know. So. <laughs> That's
0: right. So the virgin birth is the Holy Spirit, the Father, but Mary was the mother. Yes. Did,
1: Did she have a son? Father?
0: That's why the emphasis is on Adam because the, yeah, the inheritance and the responsibility is on the man. With leadership comes greater responsibility. God views Adam as responsible for the sin. We don't hear about Eve in this passage. Okay. So Adam is responsible. And so sin is through the seed of the man. That's why Genesis 3.15 talks about the seed of the woman. That's the only place in all the Bible where it talks about the seed of the woman. Women don't have seed. In that context, it's talking about, in a broader sense, it's talking about the descendants of the woman. There'll be one that'll solve the problem of sin. This is all the way in Genesis chapter 3 as a result of the first sin. So, one man, and Romans is telling us the second Adam is the one that's going to resolve the problem of sin.
1: So, that would also just follow all the inheritance laws, because generally, women did not inherit anything. Right. Unless their father made a special provision, and we're given examples where so-and-so gave an inheritance to his daughters. Right. Job did, and...
0: Yeah, there Can were some There's some exceptions, else. but in general, in general inheritance, inheritance is passed from father yes. to son. Right. So, so patriarchal, isn't it? Very patriarchal. goes totally against our culture, right?
1: And the sin so actually so- is
0: passed through the man. Say that again? The sin is passed through the band. Yes. yes. Biblically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so even. <laughs> even so, through the obedience. This is another reason why it was so important that there be a man that paid the penalty for our sin. God doesn't just deal with sin by casting it under the rug, you know, like sweeping it under the rug. He deals with it. One man paid the penalty. That's why Jesus is both God and man. Very important. So the God-man paid the penalty for all men so that we can escape. So that when we stand before the judge, the judge can legally declare us righteous because the penalty was paid. And all he asks us is to receive it, accept it. It's called faith. So the many will be made righteous. Now in this context... Notice the making of righteous, that's in contrast to being declared and it's put in the future because it's still an ongoing process during the Christian life. In fact, that's one of the keys that we'll look at to the Christian life is the process. Becoming a believer is a one-time event. The moment we trusted in him and abandoned our own decision-making, our own desires, and trusted what he's provided, that's a one-time occasion. But the Christian life we keep continue to live is an ongoing process day by day. The many will be made righteous. When is that completed? In my case, I've already arrived, right? Ha! Ha! There's a protest. (laughs) An accurate one. When do we arrive? When we go to be with the Lord, that's called glorification. Paul is going to deal with that in Romans 8. He's already hinted at it in chapter 5, verse, what is it, 2 or 3? Right in there. The many will be made righteous. Future. Or it's looking at it from this ongoing sense. So we have another contrast. We have the disobedience that leads to problem for the many. And they are, the result of that is they are sinners. One act of righteousness leads to justification of life, to that limited all men. And then verse 19, one obedience. See the contrast? I'm highlighting the contrast of all these verses. I highlighted the contrast of 12 through 17. The contrast continues throughout the passage. That is typology. And we looked at Adam as a type of Christ. Here's one of the clearest examples of typology in all of the Bible. These contrasts, in this case, we have a contrast. There's some similarities with the contrast. Similarities, one transgression, one act, affecting many Both ways, affecting all men in an unlimited and a limited sense. So there's some similarities, but also contrasts. So Adam is a type of Christ. And then verses 20 through 21, we have the contrast. This is where he's leading to. This is actually going to be expanded in chapters 6 through 8. How do we maintain... A life that is dictated by Jesus Christ as not dictator, but you you might say benevolent dictator, but as ruler. How can we continually live under the rulership and not go back to that slavery to sin and death? And Paul's going to use the word reign like a king. And he's also going to use the word in chapter 6, of slavery. Imagery that communicates two ways of living life. The unbeliever only has one way. The believer now is given a new nature and has a new capacity. So chapter six through eight are gonna expand on this idea of the reign of grace. So let's take a look at it. I'm gonna say, this is the way it is in my life, I'm sure no one else but it's with a fact that i still got problems with sin. I mean, no, I don't rob banks what you do. Yeah, you're not as bad as me. Yeah, I understand that.
1: But um, I would say that my life in Christ, I think we can say it has gone from worse to bad.
0: That can happen. Which is, I mean, it's going in the right direction. Can, but when well, yeah. I see what kind of a life I live compared to what God would want me to live, <laughs> still fall short. Way short, right? And the Christian life is growth, con- continual growth, until we are glorified. And you do reach a level of maturity, but you never fully arrive. So we all constantly struggle. So, versus, still fall short of the glory of God yeah, until we're glorified, until we are removed from these sinful bodies, and we only have one nature Juliet.
1: With that same tradition, every you know, your, your goal is to
0: grow closer to God, right? surrender everything. Six- we don't do it. <laughs> we go back. Yep, exactly. So twenty and twenty-one, and now he's going to continue a contrast. He expanded in verse nine the expansion of this reign of grace. Now he's going to contrast the twenty and twenty-one, where he's going to contrast the reign. That's the he's heading. Now, he's reminding us of what he talked about in verse, what is it, 13? The law came in so that the transgression would increase. What does that mean? Bill? Yeah, we. the law was given to define for us what sin is. Exactly. A very good way of putting it, to define and make crystal clear what sin is. That's what the law is for. The law is not designed... To save us, you might say. It's designed to, and here's kind of the central passage, one of them, to expose sin. We're going to see this
1: again in chapter 7. Another way to say it then would be that the law does not at all make us better. It does not change us, does at, not
0: all. Change us at all.
1: Even if you are a very good lock keeper, you are still just a, a dirty, rotten scoundrel. It
0: just shows you you're a dirty, what did you say? Rotten scoundrel. Scoundrel,
1: yeah. yeah. And,
0: and even before the law, you could be a dirty, rotten scoundrel. You may not have known it. Yeah. Speaking you were not fully aware of it. You're not fully aware. Of it. Yes. You knew sort of. Yeah, you had probably some good hints. <laughs> well,
1: one thing I always think of in this situation so many of our sins are really sinful themselves. Or what? So many of our sins aren't really sinful in themselves. I don't know anything
0: in the Bible. says you can't enjoy playing golf. But sometimes we're more concerned about our golf game than our relationship with Jesus Christ. That's right. And that makes it sinful. Okay, good. So the law came in so that the transgression would increase. Now he's saying not that it's going to make you sin more, but in the context, like Bill pointed out, It's going to make you aware of how sinful your sin actually is. That's what the Bible does. So in that sense, sin becomes more evident. But then he goes on. But where sin increased, here's the contrast. Grace abounded. Now we've already looked at, in this context, What's translated abounded, but it's a different word here. We have the preposition attached to it. We could even translate it superabounded. periseo. Okay? See the preposition before? We saw, but it has the hooper preceding it. And in this case, it intensifies it. So you can even translate it, it's superabounded.
1: So why is it superabounded all the more? That's kind of a redundant thing. It, it just, it's not like, uh, so it's kind of a redundant. It's, it's not redundant, it's for emphasis.
0: Yes, it's additional. In other words, and we've been stressing, the contrast throughout here have already been stressing the idea that what Jesus accomplished not only took care of the sin of Adam and all the, the effects of that, but it went above and the restoration that is available is even greater than what Adam had. In other words, we're restored to a greater place. Yes. So grace superabounded all the more. But and notice that's interpreted all the more is with the abound. Yeah. Notice the contrast again. We have another contrast. So, law increased transgression, or awareness at least, or made it evident because now you know. And by the way, for the nation of Israel, the law was intended to do this. In other words, to show them. If you read the Old Testament, if you read the law in the Old Testament, none of us could keep it. None of us could measure up, and the only one historically that ever did was Jesus Christ. The law is to show, hey, if you want to do it on the basis of your efforts, you're going to fall short. That's what the law was intended to do for the nation of Israel. And you see, like, in the life of David or some of the other psalmists, Samuel, you know, people, when they realized that they couldn't keep the law, they trusted that God was going to deal with this problem that we all have. And they were declared, I would think, they were justified and declared righteous. So law increased transgression, sin bounds or increases to an abounding of grace. So what we have in Christ is greater in terms of restorative value than what we have lost in Adam. In so that, he na, another Greek word there. This has the idea. Here's the end product. This is where God is working. And this is what he's going to pick up in chapter 6. And he's going to deal with this in some detail. So that purpose statement, as sin, and he's going to continue the contrast here, as sin reigned in death. Notice the word reign here. Here's where I get the idea. And I put it as kind of the title of the whole thing, because this is where he's heading. So there's a dictatorship that you can't escape of death in its comprehensive sense. Death intellectually, death emotionally, death volitionally, death socially, death in terms of our life purpose, and it includes even the physical death. And I've said several times, I look out at you and I can see you dying right now. We're all decaying, you might say. We're all degenerating. Our cells are dying, and not all of them are replenished every day. Connie's about to conk out. (laughs) So as sin reigned in death, here's the contrast. Even so, (laughs) grace would reign through righteousness, and it's the righteousness of God It's going to reign. But it's not automatic. That's what we're going to learn from 6 and 7. It's not just automatic. We're not instantaneously transformed. We're not made righteous. It's a process. It's one of the things we'll learn from 6, 7, and 8. So the reigning here, if you do a word study, the meaning of it is to rule as a king. The Greek word, baselou. That word, that's the verb form. That's what we have here. The noun form can be translated kingdom. So it's the idea of ruling like a king. Now we're a little unfamiliar with it because we have more we have a different form of government, but kings ruled. And there's examples in the Bible uh of kings ruling. In fact, Matthew two twenty-two speaks of the reign at Archelaus in the life of Christ, time of the early life of Christ. And it just—it's used in its everyday, normal sense of of a king ruling, and they name the king. So it's used of a king in a normal, everyday sense. Christ is called our king or a king. He rules. The verb is used in relationship to Jesus Christ. Christ is going to rule in the future. He rules now from heaven. He's going to rule in the millennial kingdom. First Corinthians fifteen twenty-five. What about you and I? Are we ever going to rule? Yep. Yeah. Um, yes. In the future, believers will reign. And if you read Revelation five ten, it speaks of uh, believers reigning, or twenty two five. Believers will have a reign with Christ. In other words, we will be part of his administration and we will rule. Now, we will be in the millennial kingdom in resurrected bodies, but there will be mortal bodies that survive the great tribulation, enter, and there will be a kingdom with Christ reigning, and we will be under him within his administration, and we will rule. There's lots of passages to give you them. I'm just giving you a summary here so that you understand what the word means. Death rules, we've already seen that in this chapter. Verse 14, did we just see that? Death reigning, and then verse 17, we saw it raining. It's even mentioned here in 2021, death reigns. And now we see that grace can reign like a king. In other words, manage or dictate, you might even say, but you got to submit to that authority. That's chapter 6, 7, and 8. And these are just a few of the passages. I could give you a lot more if we spent more time on it. And this reign through righteousness to eternal life. How is the word eternal life used in this context? Is he talking about initial eternal life that the unbeliever receives when he trusts in Jesus Christ? You're going to learn if you do a study on eternal life, some contexts deal with eternal life as a gift in the future, ongoing eternal life, you might say. But I think in this context, it's more qualitative, a different way of living right now that is eternal life. Remember when Jesus promised, he said, I came to give you life, that's salvation. And that deals with eternity, so it's eternal life. And that you might, what? Live life more abundantly. That's ongoing. And that's qualitative. That you can experience some of that here on earth. And I think that's the way it's used in this context. To eternal life. And it's always, everything that we have by grace is through Jesus Christ. Our, and what does Lord mean?
1: King. King. Is it synonymous? Is
0: Lord and King synonymous? It, or is Lord they're, King they're pretty or? synonymous, yeah. Lord is master. You could even say ruler. Jesus Christ, our ruler. And when we submit to him in daily living, we can live a different quality of life. When we go back to that old nature, then all of the old things can crop up. And... Read chapter seven, where Paul himself, he's giving his own testimony of when he let he calls it the flesh, when he let it rule, the things I want to do, I can't do. remember that passage? I,
1: can't do, I the, find myself. Doing.
0: Yeah, the things I hate I find myself doing, that's the light. Yeah, so it, it, there are two options here. And it's all through Jesus Christ. Just as justification initially is through Jesus Christ, same principles can apply in terms of the Christian life, same principle of life.
1: Justification then, you're accepting Christ as Savior. Savior. Sanctification is you're allowing Christ
0: to be ruler. Ruler continually. Very good. Good distinction. So we have the final contrast sin reigned producing death in a comprehensive sense. Now, i got to stress this because we're going to see that same contrast in more detail in chapter 6. When it talks about death in chapter 6, it's not talking about final separation from God it's because it's talking about a believer now, but you can live a dead life. In other words, it doesn't produce anything of value. As a believer, you can live that way if you're living in the flesh. But the contrast, grace... Can reign, grace reigning for righteous living, and that's the key, 6, 7, and 8 are going to stress that, so the key to living the Christian life is in the reign of grace, how do we allow grace to reign, that's a summary of chapters 6, 7, and 8, so we don't have to do them now, we can skip over to chapter 9, right? So Alright, since you twitched, you get to close for us, Connie. <laughs>
1: Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Your grace, great, uhm, and I pray that will help with, uh, each and every pray that for them as well. Uhm, she ended about with your father, the end. Father, pray that, uhm, as we speak all the, uh, all the, you don't continue to do it until you can walk in it. So you can't. You can't. You can't. You can't. Amen.